Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. And like I did last week, I'm going to take you back into the archives of Off Camera to highlight one of my favorite episodes from the past. And this week it's going to be Kristen Bell, all the way back to episode number 57. Uh, I really enjoyed this because I had no expectations going in and I really connected with Kristen and was really surprised by a lot of what she had to say. So I'm sure you can hear it in my voice as she starts revealing things about her personality, her psychological makeup, uh, her struggles, and it's always just stood out as one of my favorite episodes. So I want to share this with you this week while we continue behind the scenes here at Off Camera to figure out our new broadcast partner and keep this thing going. So enjoy the episode. Kristen Bell, number 57. Here you go. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another episode of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. This time around, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with actress and singer Kristen Bell. You may remember her husband Dax Shepard's appearance on this very show, episode 36 for those of you who are keeping count. And you may also remember how much Dax talked about his relationship with Kristen, which further piqued my curiosity about the woman I met eight years ago on the set of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and whose voice hypnotized my daughters and took over my home a few years back when she played Anna in Disney's $1.3 billion film, Frozen. And though Kristen is as lovely and funny as you might imagine, the conversation took some directions I didn't expect, and a much more nuanced portrait emerged. Speaking of nuance, Kristen's breakout in Veronica Mars established her as an actress who could bring the snark along with the sweetness, and forever earned her a place in the Fanboy Hall of Fame. She talks about how much she learned about herself from that role, and how being very likable can lead to some very interesting duplicity, a trait she explored, although she hates that word, in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Hit and Run, and in her brilliant portrayal of Jeannie Vanderhoeven in Showtime's House of Lies. But for most of her life, Belle cringed at the thought of anyone not liking her, a malady that, on the surface, seems disastrous for anyone pursuing a career in the film business. But dig a little deeper, and it turns out that that's exactly what the doctor ordered, along with a prescription of serotonin inhibitors. Stay with us as Kristen talks about what got her into acting, the reason she has underplayed her beautiful singing voice, and why she loves her bad movies as much as the good ones. We are likely to see a lot more of her, because she's going to be around a long time, possibly forever, if modern medicine can keep pace with her eternal optimism. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Sam. So thank you for coming and doing this. Thanks for having me. Uh, we had your husband on a year ago or so, and he was great, and we talked about you for like half the episode. Great, as great. You know. So we can certainly talk about him, um, but... You know, I met you, what is it, eight years ago now? I photographed you for Forgetting yeah. Sarah Marshall. And I'm a big fan of your work. I, I, I want to talk all about kind of what you bring to characters like that. But before we get started, I have to say, you are clearly a busy person. You've got a newborn and you have a toddler. You're a major star of stage and screen. I don't and know about that, but I definitely have a newborn and a toddler. <laughs> well... <laughs> You put people to shame with your email response times because I would say that every time I sent you an email, I would get a response between like an average of eight and 16 seconds. 
You'd be right back. Really? Yes, and it was Woo. amazing. I was on fire that day. Yes. I, no, I think because I really wanted to do your show. I love your show. Thank you. And I, it wasn't. Uh, it, there was no other response. It was like, yeah, let's get on with it. So maybe that's why I was so prompt. It was impressive. Um, okay, so when Dax came on, the first thing he sort of wanted to point out about you two as a couple is that it wasn't all perfect at the beginning and, and you guys went to therapy and, and he described you guys as being so opposite. Mm -hmm. I think he, he referred to himself seeing the world as full of wolves, mm -hmm. I want to take things from you, and you as the person who will assume that someone on the side of the road with a sign saying, my family's in the van and I just need $10 for gas, mm -hmm. is someone that may eventually cure cancer and we better help them. Yeah, yeah. But is that, I mean, do you see yourself as an optimist or is that a fair descriptive way to? I think it's fair, it's accurate, yeah. yeah. And, and I enjoy having that perspective. I really genuinely like to look for the, the good in people. It makes me a happier person. And if someone has a sign on the side of the road that says I'm hungry and my family's in the van, those are the only details I know about that person, right. you know? And they, they may or may not be facts, but currently I don't know anything else that may or may not be a fact. So I always start with the face value and I, yeah, I, I really like to give people the benefit of the doubt because I, I also want them to give me the benefit of the doubt. And I really believe in y how you act as sort of your karma. Yeah, it's funny because Dax has been very open about his alcoholism and his drug abuse and all the struggles he's faced in his life. Yeah. Um, which you didn't face growing up. You didn't have any no. of those things. But when you decided to get serious about him what, and have a family and all that stuff, did, what was the trepidation there or what were some of the things that were difficult for you about his past? Everything. 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 I grew up sort of in Pleasantville. I grew up in a somewhat religious family, and there, you are given a very clear divider between good and evil and black and white. And I, again, accepted that at face value. I wasn't really ever taught to question things. I just, there were good people and there were bad people. And uh, drugs are bad, and I just I had all these categories of black and white. And then when, as we got to know each other, he started bringing up stories about, oh, when I used to drink, and then this one time I was just off the map for four days, and I was like, what? What? And then he talked about his drug addiction, and then I, in truth, well, I reacted because it scared me. Yeah. Because I wanted him to be good. I wanted to put him on this pedestal. I didn't want to have to grow up and start acknowledging that people are fallible and that people make mistakes and that everybody is very well-rounded, and I didn't want to get rid of that idea of black and white and good and bad because it was an easy way for me to navigate the world. And it's harder when everything's gray. Yeah. And when you acknowledge that people make mistakes and people that have done awful, awful things, sometimes they deserve forgiveness. And it scared me because... I'd never really known anyone that had struggled with addiction. I didn't know much about the disease, and I didn't want him to be a bad person. Right. You had to, you had to change your um, 
system of thinking about people to accept him into your life or something like he that? He has rerouted all my neurons and the way that I think. So he wasn't necessarily who I pictured I would be with when I was in my early 20s. I thought, oh, I'll, marry, I'll probably marry a Greenpeace worker and I don't know, he'll be like a social justice like lawyer or something and we'll save the world together. And I mean, I, I married a hillbilly from Michigan, which I desperately tried <laughs> to get out of. A crack-smoking hillbilly. A crack-smoking like hillbilly. Like motorcycle racer. And I'm lucky he has all his teeth. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. But I, I um, he was so, I think part of... His bad boy thing was also what stimulated me and what drew me to him, if I'm being honest, because there is something weird about women and and things they shouldn't go for. And he was always this fine line of having this bad boy past but being reformed, and he he always treated me really, really well. Although he did break up with me very early on. He did. I maybe scared him a little bit because I wanted to spend all of our time together. I was very excited. But were you sort of like you sound almost like you're describing yourself as the sheltered girl that that you know you get the boyfriend and you just hang on a, as tight as you can. A little bit. It's not as I guess scary or weird as it sounds. I've never been able to even sit through a first date without if I'm bored. It's it's a struggle for me to keep it together, and I know within ten minutes of meeting you whether or not we will work together, will stimulate each other, and whether I want to spend any more time with you. So I I've never dated anyone casually, right? Ever I've always had either long term boyfriends or been single, and he had just gotten out of a relationship and wanted a little bit more freedom, and I don't think wanted everything I was presenting to him. Um, And so he sat me down and said, I don't think we are in the same place. I really, really enjoy you. And at that point, I was definitely in love with him. We were a month and a half in. And I was heartbroken. And, oh, God, even thinking about it, it breaks my heart. And he he said, I'm still casually dating other people. And I was like, because I definitely wasn't. And he said, I, he was very big about it. He said, that's not what you deserve and that's not what you're asking for and I'm not going to give you anything half-assed. So in a way, he was extremely responsible with my heart, even though he broke it. And then four days later, <laughs> he texts me and is like, uh, just joking, I can't do this. Um, I, 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 I would really like to be with you again. And I went to my therapist and I said, well, now he's back. What do I do? This is all in the span of like four days. Yeah. yeah. Four difficult days. Four difficult days. <laughs> and then I went over to his house and I was a little guarded. And he had planned this trip to uh, the Bahamas for New Year's. And he had sort of invited me, and he said, I should probably let them know about, if you're going to come on the, the trip, i got to let them know about the Bahamas trip. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I should just let them know, I guess, if we're going to go. And I was like, if you want to invite me on a trip, you can ask me like a lady. I really gave him, I think, some grief after he... That set the tone for the relationship in a yeah, way? Yeah, because one thing that I think my therapist has said is that if you you maybe maybe make him earn you back just a little bit. Don't play a game, but just a little bit, you know? Don't go back like some 
happy, dumb puppy dog. <laughs> and so he did. He said, I would uh, really like it if you would accompany me to the Bahamas for New Year's. Would you like to come? And I said, yes, I would love to. Wow. He almost lost you. Yeah, but did he? I was just waiting for him to come back. <laughs> so this idea of the bad boy guy who's instantly instantly exciting to you and then and then you being this sort of picture even to him of this really good went to catholic school never did anything wrong all that and i just wonder if at, around that time or or even younger if if someone bought into that idea of you just being this this person trying to do good and having this sort of mayberry-esque uh, upbringing what we would miss if we just bought into that story well i think that I'm extremely codependent. It is, I shatter a little bit when I think people don't like me. That's part of why I lead with kindness and, and I compensate by being very bubbly all the time because it, it, I don't know, it really hurts my feelings when I'm not liked. And I know that's not very healthy and I fight it all the time. And I mean, I guess I would, I would, Looking back, I would probably have been, I mean, I was a popular girl. I had a lot of friends. I never wanted for friends. But again, there was this, um, I was always nervous right under the surface that someone would reject me. And so I changed who I was often. I changed my interests based on what my friends liked. And it wasn't, I, I really didn't realize that until I was in my 30s that I had sort of changed for everybody. And I think I also... Struggled a lot with anxiety and depression. You did? Uh-huh. My mom sat me down when I was probably 18, and she said, there is a, a serotonin imbalance in our family line, and it can often be passed from female to female, and your grandma, my grandmother was one of the first people they tested electroshock therapy on. You're she was nuts. Me. No, she would lock herself in her bedroom and and drink for two days and they would slide food under the door and like it was it was rough I mean it, it certainly affected my mom and broke her a little bit but she's a nurse and she had the wherewithal to recognize that in herself when she was feeling it and when I was 18 said if you start to feel like you are twisting things around you and you start to feel like there is no sunlight around you and you you are paralyzed with fear, this is what it is and here's how you can help yourself. And I've always had a really open and honest dialogue about that, especially with my mom, which I'm so grateful for because you have to be able to cope with it. I mean, I present this very cheery, bubbly person, yeah. but I also do a lot of work. I do a lot of introspective work, and I check in with myself when I need to exercise. And And I, you know, got on a prescription when I was really young to help with my anxiety and depression, and I still take it today, and I have no shame in that. Wow. Because my mom had said to me, if you start to feel this way, talk to your doctor, talk to a psychologist, see where how you want to help yourself. And if you do decide to go on a prescription to help yourself, understand that the world wants to shame you for that. But in the medical community, you would never deny a diabetic his insulin. Right, of course. Ever. But for some reason, when someone needs a serotonin inhibitor, they... 
they're immediately crazy or something. And I don't know. It, it's a it's an, a very interesting double standard that I, I, I don't often have the ability to talk about, but I, I certainly feel no shame about. Amazing. I mean, what's what's interesting about that is that you picked a career that's just rife with anxiety and oh, depression. Sure. Well, I'm curious about one more thing that I read. And, you know, Wikipedia is horrible because sure. everything's there. And I'm sure that's something that's you just have to accept when you become a public figure. But I did read that you were voted prettiest girl in your <sighs> high school. Sorry. So lame. And this may be a dumb question, but I wonder if that set anything in motion for you because, you know, in high school, we had those things at our high school too. Most likely to do this or, yeah. you know, most handsome or most athletic or whatever it was. I was right? desperate for one with substance. To me, making people giggle was always way more important to me or the most important thing to me. And that's really why I wanted to be a performer. And so it was always vaguely embarrassing that I was voted prettiest because it didn't feel like I earned it. I didn't have a hand in it. I don't know. It was almost like it was an acknowledgement I'd rather not get. That's what I wondered. Because I think in high school you assume, oh, the, the popular people they want those things, and that's and a lot of people can hang their next ten years on that. Yeah, I didn't want to. I always wanted to be the funniest. Really? Yeah, always. I mean that, and that's why I'm. I hang out with a bunch of comedians now, and I get giddy, and I and I, my husband makes me laugh more than anyone, and I'm always desperate to try and make him laugh, and thankfully sometimes I nail it, and my self-esteem goes through the roof. But I, I always wanted to to make people laugh and it was it was you know simultaneously because I liked to see people smile and also really selfish it made me feel very good um, it was a skill set that I uh, enjoyed experimenting with when I could be weird and make someone laugh but the funny thing about looks is when I started out auditioning yeah. in film and television the feedback that I would often get was you're too down the middle. We can't really place you because you're not homely enough to be the awkward best friend, but you're, you're not really pretty enough to be the, the girlfriend that the boy is going after. You would hear this. Yeah. Oh, I got it a lot. And so I was always somewhere in the middle struggling for, well, then what part can I play? I mean, for the love of Christ. I mean, <laughs> I there's really? got to be something out there. And... I think that that was what sort of allowed me to cherish and bring out these quirkier qualities that I enjoy about myself that make me unique. Or not unique, but just different from other people. To stop trying to fit into one or the other of those categories. I also think that I, I probably took myself more seriously back then. Because I also, before I left New York, did the, the Crucible on Broadway, and I found that I really enjoyed channeling negative emotions into performances because I am chock full of um, fear and anxiety and tears, like, at all times. And I do a really good job of hiding it, but I have a real hard time talking about or acknowledging suffering, like, on the planet in a grand scale or... Up close, I, I don't really love to hear about news stories. I don't like to watch the news at all. It scares me because I, I am empathetic to a fault that I cannot 
not put myself in that person's position, even when I don't want to. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. It's a, it's a scary feeling because, like, even last night we were watching um, real sports, and Bryant Gumbel was doing a, a story about this um, archery uh, champion who had no arms, and they showed, uh, his parents had uh, given him up for adoption at like two months, and they were showing these pictures of this little boy who had no arms, this little toddler that was like being bathed in the sink, and he had no arms, and I can't even think about it without thinking, what must it feel like to, A, have no arms, and B, grow up knowing that your parents kind of abandoned you because you were too much. Yeah. And of course, I'm being hyper dramatic because that's not at all how he took his life. He was he's like this. I mean, look, I'm a mess. This this is what it's like to live with me. I cry over everything. But this well, anyways, this it turned into this inspiring story about how this guy was like, "No, I don't wish I had arms. I love my life." And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> but I love positive stories, but the negative ones, man, they sit in my heart and they just fester there. And I and I think about them often. And like I'm up at night thinking about this Syrian refugee crisis and all these babies that are trying to cross these waters and these deserts. And I like I feel like I'm going to explode. I, I genuinely feel like I could cry over everything oh and I'm going to explode. Gosh. But this long-winded story will end up. When I was doing The Crucible, like a dramatic work like that, I'm able to cry on stage about things that affect me as Kristen, and I'm able to get it out through the character. And it's helpful. It's like therapy to me. And I remember my first job I booked in L.A. was uh, on The Shield, and I was a girl that had one scene that they took in for questioning, I had been raped and tattooed on the face, like a teardrop or something, that whatever means rape on the face, I don't know. We're going to look that up. We're going to research. Somebody's got to know, right? Who here's in a gang? Anybody? <laughs> look at our camera people. What means rape? Who's got, I don't know. But it was like an awful storyline, but I read it, and it was a monologue about what had happened to me, and I, I could bawl at the drop of a hat. I could wow. cry instantly, and it was this fusion of the character's sadness, this person I was imagining, their sadness, fused with my sadness, and I was able to get it out, and it became a, a means of survival for me. And I think I've learned to manage how sad I can feel about things by getting it out and by just growing up a little bit. Right. Do you remember a time, I mean, I know that obviously Veronica Mars was sort of your first time to work all the time mm-hmm. and, and be the lead in the series. And um, did you find on that, on that series you discovered your own method? Yeah, it was the first time I got to sit with someone for so long and really explore her. I mean, I'm also slightly nauseated by all these acting terms, like explore her. Uh-huh. So sometimes when I say them, I'm like, oh, shut up. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes that's the only accurate way to say it. It When you are pretending to be someone else, you try to make it, or I do, as authentic to yourself as possible while taking in the other person's circumstances. So I had never really been allowed to be someone for that long, and I played her for three years. And it, it acting is just like muscle memory. How it, so? Well, it, once you learn someone's instincts, 
because they're ever so slightly different from your own because that person has gone through different things. You have to, you know, as an actor, the, the simplest parts are like, oh, you have to remember this person is afraid of dogs or this person, you know, I don't know, is really excited by X, Y, Z. So you, and you have to apply those things. And sitting in Veronica's skin for so long, I think it also brought out my inner snark and sass, and I loved it. It, it. I felt so empowered telling people off on that show because I had, again, I grew up in Catholic school. I'd never been, had the confidence to do it. I was always just like bubbles and rainbows and sunshine. Please like me. I'll be anything that you need me to be as long as we can be friends. And so when Rob Thomas wrote this role of the sort of somewhat darker girl who still fought for the underdog, had a great ethical barometer, yeah. which is what I was really wanted to keep, but kind of sassed people that talked down to her or really beat up a bully, it, it made me feel big. That's interesting. In that time in television there what there weren't strong female characters like that everywhere yeah it was a very unique character because it was so accurate in the sense that it was what everybody needed at the time it's what they wanted to see they wanted to have veronica as their best friend fighting for them i feel like she's the imaginary best friend everybody has like she compensated for everybody's fear about standing up for themselves because she just didn't care Veronica just did not give a fuck. Now, you know? even though you were, you were what, 24, 25 when you played her in high school, were you, yeah. were you able to tap into your own high school experiences? Yeah, but they Was were... that weird going back? No. Kind of? I think I was at the intellectual and emotional level of Veronica when I was 24, 25. Really? Yeah, because I was coming into my own skin. I was realizing I can stand up for myself and it might be respected. I don't know, playing that character really helped me come into my own, I think, because I couldn't really draw on from my high school experience. I was nothing like Veronica. What do you think you were most afraid of happening? Well, I think it's simultaneous with adolescence. You have uh, belonging is as important as oxygen. I mean, and truthfully, anthropologists have actually identified that, that it goes like oxygen, water, food, belonging. They, they are the, the need in human evolution, that you will disregard everything else, clothes and things, and they will find a sense to belong. So it's, it's, I knew it was important in my human evolution as an adolescent, but I think, I don't think I was given the chance to discuss my fears uh -huh. very often. And like now I read a lot of parenting books to try to do it right with my kids. And Something that a lot of them reiterate is that uh, a child who is denied the opportunity to talk about their mistake cannot learn from their mistake. And Dax has made me so comfortable with mistakes and so comfortable with not being perfect, I guess. Because I can't identify what I was afraid of in high school. I just know that I, you know, growing up with a lot of religion around you, you're just told not to do a lot of things. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't get discussed. That's heaven, this is hell, this is good, that's bad, that's all you need to know. And I just think that's a really, first of all, it's a dangerous way to think. And it's um, just not healthy. Yeah. I think people are all a mixture of grays. And when we stop acknowledging that, we all st are stunted. So you were trying to live up to something, and it was, it was just, I have to be good. 
yeah, and I didn't even know why I wanted to be good, but I was tortured. Was I good enough? And it was just useless. It was so useless. Now I know why I want to be good. I like being nice to people. I want people to be nice to me. I want to live in a world where people are kind. I'm happier when I put my head on the pillow. I'm proud when I stand with my daughters to know that I just did something good for someone. I I get a high off of helping people. I sleep better at night. But I I believe that not being able to talk about fears or too much of reality because you can't talk about a ton of reality when you grow up in a religious family. You can't have um you can't disagree with a lot. You can't poke holes in a theory and say, "Well, why why is that?" Exactly. There's no room for critical thinking and like there's this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy which Dax does like on a daily basis where you just try and take the devil's advocate position to anything and think through it. And and that's how you either discuss an issue or come to terms with an issue or, you know. Or develop a belief. Exactly. Yeah. And I was never taught to do that because it was like, don't believe that because then you're this. It was always these labels of if you did this, right. you were this. Right. And I, um, I just don't buy into that anymore. And also, you know, it's worth talking about the idea, too, that you looked so young for so long in terms of, you know, pl- being 25 and playing a 15-year-old. I think late bloomers, they have to define themselves differently or they, they come to a definition later than someone who just sort of, I don't know, is that, is yeah, that valid? Yeah, you're, you're following the pack for longer than everyone else is. Right. Because if you're a runt or a late bloomer, and I definitely was, you're, I mean, I didn't have my first kiss till I was 16. Right. And it, you know, every, I was wearing a training bra for like six years before I needed one because everyone in middle school snapped each other's bras down the hallway and I needed to be a part of that. I was like, I can't have someone reach in between my shoulder blades and not feel a bra strap. I have to have a bra, mom. And she's like, okay. But I, I think that, yeah, you, you, when you see, when you witness everyone around you finding their identity and it's just not there for you yet because... You, you struggle to find it when your hormones kick in. Until then, you're really just a, a lighthearted kid. Yeah. And, I, yeah, Dax, oh, he tells this story a lot about me because he thinks it's so charming, and I just think it's so embarrassing. But he came to my childhood bedroom, and I, I had this poster in my closet of Antonio Banderas. <laughs> and he was looking at it, and he's like, oh. I knew he was thinking, God, she's never mentioned liking Tony B before. And he turned around and he went, you didn't actually like Antonio Banderas, did you? And I was like, not really. And he said, you only put that up because other girls your age were putting up posters of hunks, didn't you? That was the first one you found. And I, he, like, pegged me immediately. Oh, my God. It was. It was the first hunky poster that I found and I was like this got to go up on the wall because I've got to be a part of whatever's happening hormonally to all these other middle schoolers. I was always a little bit frightened that someone would um, expose me as not having gone through puberty until I was 17. Well I think it's especially interesting for you because you do have this quality uh, in terms of labels of America's sweetheart, blonde, beautiful, funny, successful and and to hear how much you struggled, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, you could easily gloss over all of that and people would believe you didn't struggle. For me, I struggled. But again, 
I mean, my parents were divorced when I was little, so technically, if you want to label it a broken family, but I never felt that way. I always felt like I just had more parents around to love me. I didn't feel that it was extremely dramatic. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't lose a parent at a young age. Like, I wasn't, you know, working in a coal mine when I was 18. Um, well, yes. my research is wrong on that one. Uh -oh. I, I had you down uh, As working in, in Kentucky, the coal mine. The coal, yeah. It's a different Kristen Bell. So I guess I, guess I get nervous about labeling me as someone who's struggled, even though I have felt struggles. Because I witness so many people that go through so much more, I'm still very, 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 very grateful for the nothing that's happened to me in my entire life. Of course, but what you're talking about, it's significant. It's, and it's what everyone, everyone goes through some degree of it. Yeah, you know. it's my emotional journey and I don't mean to diminish it. I just, I, I like to keep it in perspective because there are people are, that have real problems. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation for a minute so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. Now, about a year ago, the fine folks at Helix decided to send me a mattress. And first they asked me to take their mattress quiz. Now what that is, is Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. You know, these days we hear a lot about things like this. You know, how better living through technology and we're going to match you to your perfect product and this and that. So it's easy to be skeptical about this kind of stuff. But I want to tell you that I went into the Helix mattress test thinking, oh, I know I'm a firm mattress guy and that's what I've always slept on. I'm tall. I've had back injuries. I like a firm mattress. I took their test and after two minutes, the result was that Helix thought I should have a medium mattress. So I thought, okay, they're going to sponsor the show. I'm going to play along with this. And they sent me a medium mattress. And I got to tell you, I've had the best sleep of my life ever since getting that Helix mattress sent to my house. I have been more comfortable. I sleep better. I don't get as hot. I don't have back issues. And it's kind of amazing that I thought I knew what my sleep preferences were until I went through this process. And it's not just the sleep preferences. They make a mattress that, for me has been the most comfortable and great experience that I've ever had. So I'm obviously in a very privileged position to be able to do this show and be able to have access to things like this. But having Helix as a sponsor and going through this process, I really believe in this company. So if you're not happy with your current mattress or you think you might be able to get a better sleep, I definitely suggest you take a few minutes and check out Helix Sleep. Whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or a firm bed, with Helix there's no more confusion and no more compromising on an average mattress. They were even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So you just go to helixsleep.com slash off camera, you take their two minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10 year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. But I think you will. And I think it's worth trying out. So again, go to helixsleep.com slash off camera, take their two minute sleep quiz. And to our listeners only, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash off camera. Once again, just by being a listener of this show, you can get up to $200 off your purchase of a Helix mattress at helixsleep.com slash off camera. Now back to the show. You said something about Veronica Mars um, and, and how, how much you fell in love with your snark 
and and being able to not only not only play a character that stands up for people, but also just that that not being perfect character. And when I saw Forgetting Sarah Marshall, it was such a confusing film for me because in that film you cheat on your boyfriend for an entire year, lie about it, break up with him unceremoniously, move on to another guy, have no, show no remorse, and then when things start to go bad for you, you manipulate your old boyfriend to try to get him back. I mean, your character's terrible mm -hmm. all the way through, and yet strangely likable, and I still cared for And then I had to think about it and go, why do I feel for this character? Because she sucks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I wonder if, if that film being the one that people really got to know you from, um, if you learned something from that. That's very accurate, yes. I, I, that was, I feel like, at the beginning of my enlightenment of realizing everything is gray, and gray is way more interesting than black and white. I don't even know that at the time I knew what I was doing, but I know that when I read it, I felt for her. That's so interesting. Yeah, I just identified with her immediately. Um, she sort of had a silver spoon and made a lot of mistakes, uh, but still wanted everything to be happy and was, again, desperate for people to like her, right. whether it was... The public, right? Yeah, the public or the new boyfriend or then even the old boyfriend in the end. And I, that was very familiar to me. And also, I've cheated on boyfriends, and I'm not proud of it. But you, you do this weird thing where you sort of backpedal to, to pretend that you didn't do it because you can't deal with the guilt. And I felt like that's what she was doing in Sarah Marshall is blaming other people for her problems, um, but still with this desperate sense to be liked. And then when the... The critics started talking about it. That review was coming out a lot, that it was sort of nuanced and she was likable when she was unlikable. Did that open up a whole new territory of acting? Yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence because, again, I had been struggling to figure out where I fit in, and I realized, oh, that's my thing. I have a quality that's likable even when I'm doing awful things. Yeah, and that's it's a, your thing. Yeah, it's kind of my thing, and I don't... It's like when you broke our window on the way in. We weren't even upset about and it. And I don't fucking care that I broke that window, and you're going to forgive me. No, but I mean, <laughs> it, it, seriously, like it feels overly confident and, and, and arrogant to say, but I, 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 I can recognize that there's a likable sense to my personality. There's, there's something that is warm about it. And when you combine that with a role, with a character who's doing mischievous things or bad things, it creates an interesting duplicity. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really enjoy that. You know, I think it's so lucky to have a film that introduces you to the world actually be a film that shows off your, your particular qualities. As great as that is, I have to say... How I look at my career now, yeah. I think there's such a difference between having a career and just working. Having a career is your ego, and having work is just what you do on Earth. And it... I take projects now less based on the character and more based on how I will thrive during the production. Because I, looking back, realize I've had just as much fun on all the bad movies I've done as the good movies. I don't look at numbers when the movie comes out. I don't track it. I don't, I don't think any of those things are healthy for me. 
Um, I look at, are these people lovely? Are they warm? Are they um, going to be fun to work with every single day? Is this project going to allow me to spend as much time now with my kids and my husband as I want? And and that's how I'm, I currently choose my work because I, I really look back at everything now and I'm like, oh, I know, I don't care how any of the movies performed. I don't care, I don't, I mean, I want people to like them, but ultimately I don't really care if people like them. I, I want to know that my nine to five is, is making me smile. God, that sounds like freedom. It does feel very freeing. It yeah. does. And of course, a lot of these nuggets are given to me by Dak Shepard because <laughs> he is constantly. I feel like he's in the room. I feel like he's here with us now. He, We're blowing up right, his ego right now. I'm wired because he likes to know everything I'm doing. He's in his car like this. He's in his car. I, he, he speaks a lot of nuggets of truth, but that's because he's constantly conducting a fierce moral inventory. <laughs> he really is. It's so annoying because he's like, you know what? It's not healthy that we look at all the numbers. It's not healthy. Like what? He just wants to be better every day and that has nothing to do with perfection it has to do with peaceful existence and we both came to that conclusion I think that you know the bad movies were just as much fun as the good movies and ultimately who cares who are we putting this giant jigsaw puzzle together for right in the end because I I do often think when I'm laying on my deathbed what am I going to think about Get, this is if I die. Because you may not. I may, well, modern medicine. Cryogenics. I mean, anything could happen. If I die, let's just say I do for the sake of the argument. <laughs> what am I thinking about there? You know? And I, I think about that a lot. Cher once told me, if it doesn't matter in five years, it doesn't matter. That, that could kind of be anything, though. Except yeah. maybe your family. Exactly. And we've answered the question. Well, look, there's such a balance in what you're talking about that I don't know if it's the serotonin inhibitors or just... Maybe I'm high as a kite. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it. And you know what? Cheers. <laughs> maybe it's what we put in your drink. No, but uh, okay. So a uh, few things I want to touch on. First off, on, I love House of Lies. And aside from the fact that what a great thing to be on a show that's, what, now five seasons? Yeah. Do you find that the actor term explore, do you find there's a... F- there's a joy in exploring a character over that long of a time where you can really get to know her, what she can do and what she's capable of? That's my very favorite thing. It's why I come back to TV always. Um, I so much more enjoy sitting with a character and things that happen three, four, five, six months into playing her. And especially with Jeannie because she was, I was playing her the first couple episodes. I was playing this girl, and then she sort of sunk in because I realized the things that she wanted and how sort of emotionally stunted she was, and I had a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, explain that. So you said at first you're just playing her. Mm -hmm. You're reading the lines and figuring out how to play them scene to scene. You're just faking it. That's my job is just to fake it. But then something different happens. Yeah, well, the fun comes, and I'm sure much better actors do all of that work in the months leading up to their first day of work. And you know what? Kudos to them. That's wonderful. Um, I don't do it, but I kind of just go in there and start to fake it. And then on television, it starts to sink in, and then it becomes like this muscle memory where you, a part of you is the character, and you know instinctually how she will react in a scene or in a given scenario. You don't have to think about it. It's funny because 
there's so much deceit and dark, twisted, really adult stuff on that show. Yeah. Like really adult, like people behaving their worst. Yeah. And and I guess if you looked at you on the surface or label you, you would say, well, that's very different than who you are. But maybe it's not. Like maybe maybe there's a there's a joy to exploring that super adult stuff. And not having to deal with any of the consequences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I think there's a shock value to the show, too, that um, makes me wonder, because also, you know, being sort of the face of this Disney franchise that's incredibly ingrained in anyone who has ever had girls in, you know, in history, or kids in general, but then, and then going over to do House of Lies, and, you know, you're taking ayahuasca and puking. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, you know, I get, you could look at that from afar and go, oh, I wonder if there's times when she draws the line and says, I'm not going to do that. But I watch you and I, I feel like you get this huge joy out of that shock factor, too. Oh, yeah. I've never said I wasn't going to do that. Like, you never worry about no. the overall image at all. For who? Who am I worrying about? I don't know. I mean, the idea that the Frozen franchise is a $1.3 billion franchise, I mean... For all I know, there's some clause in the contract of you can't go do this or you can't Plausible go do deniability because I don't know about that clause. <laughs> also, House of Lies existed before Frozen. I mean, sure, contractually you always have to dance on razor blades because this is L.A. and we're all bound to different things. But I, I was finally able to ask myself the question, who am I making decisions for? Who? Who, who cares? I mean... If I enjoy it, that should really be the only factor. I don't make different decisions about my work now that I have kids. The The only caveat to that is that I make sure that I can still spend as much time with them. You know, it's funny. You said also earlier, you said that, um, uh, you know, that, that some of these emotional ro- roles were, they allowed you to get a lot of this sadness and stuff out. Yeah. I wonder what doing a show like that that's so adult and has so many themes. I wonder what that allows you to do. I think if I'm being brutally realistic with myself, it does allow me to get a lot of selfish, negative uh, desires and instincts out of my system and not have to deal with them during the day. You know, playing a girl who's kind of, who's selfish and, and bad, if you had to label her, it um, it allows me to be a real jerk at work and and then check it there. Yeah, right. Because when you're having those emotions, when you're acting, you're still having them. Is that true? I think for me, yeah. So 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 you can you can go through a scene that that requires you to completely blow up at somebody and that can actually t- like remove some stress of your real life. Without question. Because well, if you think about it, you know, there, when there are tears coming out of your eyes, there are tears coming out of your eyes. And your body is, is getting rid of whatever is in there. And, you know, even anytime you have a good cry, you always feel better afterwards. And you always feel a little, a little exhausted. That's how I feel every time I do an emotional scene. I always feel really exhausted. And I always feel a little bit better because I've sort of gotten something out. And particularly struggling with the emotional road I've been on of having anxiety and depression, I identify anxiety and depression as too much of everything, too much 
sadness and hurt and anger and too much of the negative emotions and nowhere to place it. So the reason you become an unhappy person is because you're going, well, it must be because of you or, or it's got to be because of this relationship or because this chair isn't right and this tea isn't hot enough and then that's your anxiety and depression. And I always felt like a great trick for me when I felt that it was grabbing hold of me and I felt so negative about everything. Um, I would write it all down on paper. And if I couldn't reconcile the list of pros and cons, and I'm like, shit, I really can't. I don't have many cons. Now, why do I still feel like there's a cloud following me? Oh, it's because I have a serotonin imbalance. Um, right. And it's interesting because it's been such a helpful therapeutic tool to be able to have acting because I can put that somewhere. Because so, it's coming. It fills up. So my theory at the beginning that you picked a path that was full of anxiety and d depression was actually the path where you can manage, you can, you can sort of exercise these demons yeah. on a database. So I maybe think it's so, the yeah. perfect thing for you. Maybe everyone who's depressed should just start auditioning. Listen, we could try it. We're only going to know if it works if we try it. <laughs> I, I see a business opportunity here. <laughs> the school for depressed. Um, yes you know, future actors. Your therapist will tell you, start auditioning. Yeah. 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 How do you feel about rejection? <laughs> You're going to feel a lot better after you get rejected yes, 30 times. Exactly. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Lightstream. How much money are you paying in interest on your credit cards every month? Too much? then why not consolidate your credit cards into just one payment at a lower fixed rate and start saving money right now? It's easy with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. And rates are as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay. So that's much lower than the national average interest rate on credit cards, which can be over 20% APR. And you can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 with absolutely no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. So here's an example testimonial from a real person who used Lightstream. I quote, I heard about Lightstream through a radio program advertisement. I'm so glad that I had the courage to reach out and try their service. Top-notch customer support and service, very streamlined process, and no issues or regrets. Well, that's kind of what you want with any company, but it's especially what you want when you're dealing with debt. You want a streamlined service, you want no hassles, you want good customer support, and you want to feel like the company on the other end is caring about you as a customer. That's why you should choose Lightstream for credit card consolidation. And just for the listeners of Off Camera, you can apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get the discount is to go to lightstream.com slash camera. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash camera. Now the disclaimer that I love reading. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes an 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash camera for more information. Now back to the conversation. Well, I would be, I would be a bad father if I didn't bring up Frozen a little bit. Okay, first off, Dax told me, and we're, I, here's Dax again, we can't avoid him. We cannot avoid him. But he told me when he was here that... There are certain things about him that he sort of had to evaluate once he got married and had kids. And he tried to figure out, like, what, what makes him him? And, and he said that 
you were so supportive of him, of him racing and driving dune buggies and motorcycles and everything because that sort of made him who he was mm. and trying to define the essential elements that you can't just throw away when you get married and have kids because then you wouldn't be you. Mm -hmm. And he said that for you, singing was like your motorcycles. He said it was something that if you gave it up, it would, you wouldn't be you. So I hear that and then I read that when the whole Frozen thing started happening, did you sort of advertise that you had this whole singing background to the world or? No, I mean, I, there are very few things I do just for how it makes me feel. Because my codependency is usually, if I'm going to do something, it's how, how does it make everybody feel? How will you react to it? So you can lose yourself in someone else's presence trying to be what they want. Yeah. Still. Yeah. 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 If I'm not careful. If you're yeah. not careful. Yeah, yeah. I have to check in with it a lot because I'm an, an eager chameleon. But singing is totally different because it just, there, there's a, they say in theater, we sing because we can't speak any longer. And, and, and that's when you, when you see really good musical theater. And I know some, tons of it is cheesy, and I love all of the cheesy shit as well. It just makes me happy. But when you truly can elevate a character's emotional perspective so much so that they cannot talk anymore, that's when the orchestra comes in, and that's when they start to sing. And that's the road that a musical is supposed to take. And yeah. when it's done really well, it can do it. And it, it's it's riveting for the audience to watch because it's it's just like dancing. It's just a different skill set. And for me, when I'm singing, and I sing a lot, just alone to myself, and sometimes to my girls when they want it. But it it just it makes me feel more, and it it has the ability to change my mood, which is it's like alcohol in that way. It, it can adjust your mood. It's a little bit of. Um, I don't know, it's kind of magic. Music is really magic, and singing to me has always been really important, and um, I'm extremely insecure when I do it. Are you really? I, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like because, knowing that you can sing, because you're a beautiful singer, and you're clearly, like, not only talented, but trained, and your pitch is beautiful. I would think, I would think, it, you know, I, I used to think, because I was so skinny as a little kid, that... If I had muscles and stuff, I'd walk around with my shirt off all the time, you know. Like, I would think that... No, because that particular thing isn't for you. It's for me. That's so interesting. So you're insecure about it because it's almost like it, you feel protective of... Yeah, it's mine. I like, I like to sing because um, it makes me feel good, and it's, it's one of... I mean, there are tons of lovely things on planet Earth, but that one in particular has such a, a, a place in my heart as being maybe my favorite thing to do. And it really isn't about anything else. When I can use it for other things, it's great, but I would never, I don't know that I'd ever have the confidence to just have a concert. Um, because again, I, I think to have a, you know, a, an album or a, a concert or just be a singer, you have to want to give it away. Um, and I, it's something that's kind of intimate for me. It's funny, you can give away the acting and be fine with the, with the good and bad movies and the experiences, but you can't give away the singing. Yeah, I mean, I can. I can get myself there with a lot of, you know, just nerves before a performance because we perform a lot together for Frozen now and we, you know, do benefits for each other. And I can definitely get there, but I'm always 
a little nervous about it. Um, because there's something so joyful when it's just for me and when it's put on display, um, it could fail, I guess. Right. It's so special to me, music and, and singing in particular. And um, I mean, I love that I have girls and I love that they love music and I love that at night they usually want lullabies. Well, I, I'm going to confess something here, which is going to be completely embarrassing. But, um, you know, when I was... Kristen. Kristen, that was it. Don't be embarrassed. Okay. So, <laughs> when I was uh, doing some research for this, I came across um, a YouTube video of some fan appreciation thing where you got up to sing a couple songs from Frozen with the younger actors that had played the, the, the you at younger ages. Oh, uh-huh, thing. I uh-huh. don't know what it was. But, um, but you started singing and... I immediately got emotional. That's Somehow great. your voice singing a particular part of that song just gets me every time because I think of my own kids. And I watched you do this and as you're singing it, you're doing you're acting the song. It's almost like what you said when you're in the theater and you can't talk anymore, you sing. Yeah, well that was what always appealed to me about musical theater and and or doing musicals in general because I don't I don't really uh, you know, I, I sort of lump Frozen in there as musical theater, and I've done a couple other movie musicals. It's all sort of the same to me, because I found that the the fusion between music and singing, which I loved so much, and the the necessity, the the, the, the need for survival, which I needed with the acting and able to get out of motion. When you fused those two, it was sort of my perfect existence. Um, storytelling through music is is what I sort of love the most. But I think if it, there's an emotional pitch that you're feeling, and I, and I feel this when I hear Let It Go. I mean, when my daughter wants to hear it in the car, I feel it, and I'm like, the goddamn song starts, and it's like, and it just tingles on my arms, yeah. and I'm like, this song is so good. There's so much poured into the writing, and if, they, if it's done correctly, if the recipe is perfectly executed, it should make you feel something. It should make you smile. It should make you move your hips. I feel like when I saw you singing those songs, that's, I think, the first time I totally put it all together, who you, who you are, kind of. It's- yeah, and you know what I know the most, I mean, the irony of this whole thing is that guess who, I'll give you one guess, doesn't love theater at all. Not Dax. Cannot stand it let alone cannot stand musicals, can't sit comfortably in a theater because he just, he enjoys the medium of film and television so much that his necessary physical participation in the theater makes him uncomfortable. Yes, is Mr. Dax Shepard. You know what, though? That's why your relationship works. I guess. Some things are just yours and some things are just just his. And you know what? I got my motorcycle license for him. When, you did? Oh, yeah. Our first year of being together, I told you I was just so head over heels for him. Oh, so embarrassing. But uh, I was just, I was smitten and I was like, I'm going to do this. I am going to dominate this machine. And I was driving down to San Pedro, like an hour away, every four or five days to have private lessons because I, I didn't want to take in a class because I was just nervous. I'm small and those bikes are big. And I was, I had a private teacher and I was learning in a parking lot and 
you know, I did it for eight or 10 classes, however many you have. And then it was raining when I got my certification. And so when he was filling out my form and I was doing my turns around the cones, it was like, it was so dramatic that the rain was blurring the some of the the ink, <laughs> and um, I of course crashed the bike. Like the, the bike did not have rearview mirrors when I was done with it. Like it was, I crashed it a ton. Well, of you're times. in the rain. I mean that that's Hello. difficult. Hello, and so I he taped my exam on a flip camera, and I framed the uh, the certificate, and I put them under the Christmas tree, our first Christmas together. And he opened it up, and he laughed so hard. Because I just must have looked, I mean, like a, a, just a tiny girl riding this gigantic motorcycle. And I haven't done it since then because the, the whole experience was so uncomfortable for me. I thought I would enjoy it. I didn't. I don't care about riding bikes. I don't care how fast they go. I don't care how much they tilt. I don't <laughs> care how much they rev. I don't care what they sound like. I mean, I just, I'm just careful when I walk in the garage not to tip them over, and that is my relationship. So I tried my best to get into what he was interested in, and I, I haven't looked back. So I was like, no, I'll never ride again. I'll never, never, never. Even though I have the license, I don't, it's not my thing. Well, that's either the perfect description of codependency, or <laughs> it's the sweetest gesture to ever make to your husband. Maybe it's and both. I'm, impre- I'm impressed. It, is, it may be both. But I think that he should have to audition for a musical and sing like Oklahoma as a as a response to the class 4 motorcycle That license. is a great idea. The funny thing is he loves to sing. He does. Yeah. He's completely tone deaf, but he loves to sing and does it often and loudly and it's great and it incites joy in our children. Um but he has a hard time with musicals. He doesn't enjoy them. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, you two, uh, you, you somehow publicly and privately have created this relationship that, that is aspirational and also a little, bit, a little bit annoying. It's very annoying, yeah. yeah. It's annoying to be in it. Well, it's, it's annoying to watch it yeah. from afar no when, doubt. you know, you're singing... Uh, Toto songs in Africa, oh, and you're, so you know, gross. but it's a beautiful thing, and and, and uh, so. <laughs> it's funny. We definitely we used to be very territorial of our relationship because you know you're when you're in the public eye, you're even before you feel it, you're being told that things are taken from you and that they're other people's and that this uh, part of you and your public persona has to be different than your private persona. And we thought, you know what, who cares? We are who we are. And as adults, we've grown into thinking we we set a really good example about marriage. We're really confident of the kind of marriage we show our kids and the commitment we have to each other, even when we don't like each other, because we fight plenty. You know, we just fight well. We, we argue in a real healthy way. And we thought if that can help guide someone or rather inspire someone or even just make them laugh, then, you know, why not just give it away? So we're, I guess that's why we've been so open with these, you know. No, it, it's funny. It's, it's you're, when, when people are willing to be honest and just sort of, like, I had no idea that we were going to end up talking about serotonin imbalance. And I would never guess that about you. Really? Yeah. Well, it helped last night that I talked about it with Dax because I, I also, I, I've been, as an adult, I've been striving to compensate a little bit for this persona I've presented because I don't think it's fair to people who suffer to pretend that I don't. I don't think it's fair for them to 
look at me and go, well, yeah, I would be happy. I would be happy like she's happy because she has all of this. I, I think it's very important. And again, I've learned this from my ever annoying husband. But you got to be honest, and you 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 are a better example when you're honest and vulnerable with people. And so I've decided recently to sort of be open about it and just talk about that. I'm definitely not always happy. It just makes you more likable and more human. And, and it, you're right, because I think that people who, first off, if they're not in this world and they don't understand this town, they would look at you and go, if I have what she has, I wouldn't have these feelings anymore. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I want to open the conversation about, is that it's a trick. It's a trick. Uh, you, money doesn't make you happy. Uh, a, a different face doesn't make you happy. Um, it, Self-esteem can only come from inside yourself, and self-esteem is what makes you happy. If you are participating in esteemable acts, it's what makes you happy. And that's why I try to stay on that track and try to spread joy even when I'm not feeling it. And uh, there's plenty of days I don't feel it. And I I felt recently in the last couple years, maybe since I've had kids, that it's unfair to only talk about how joyful I am and only present this bubbly version of myself because A, it's not accurate, and, and B, it's misleading. Well, your kids are lucky. They got a good mom. I like my kids so much. Well, thank you for, thank you for sharing this and for bringing Dax up about 30 times in the conversation. Hey, no problem, no yeah. problem. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, once again, sometimes it's fun to look back and remember some of the past episodes And I hope you really enjoyed that episode. You know, for me, listening back to it, it makes me want to talk to Kristen again because, gosh, she's grown so much since then. She didn't even have the good place yet the last time we did that. And I've gotten to know both her and Dax so much better since that episode. But it was really fun for me to listen, and I hope it was for you too. You know, we could really use your support here at Off Camera. And you could do that mostly just by sharing the good word of the show, turning people onto the podcast, and visiting our site, offcamera.com, where you can dive deep into the off-camera experience. You know, the, one of the things that we're doing right now is highlighting our television show and our entire archive of the show that's on offcamera.com. So if you haven't seen that yet, the best way to do that is to get our monthly subscription, which is only $4.99 a month, and you can have access to every show we've ever done. We have over 215 episodes online, ready to go, to watch on any device you want, as many times as you want. And it's a great way to stay caught up with the show and to support us and to see what you've been listening to. So take a minute and check that out. You can also spread the word about us through social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. There's a whole world there of stuff to look into and to share and to enjoy. So take a minute, check us out, and please join me next time for another edition of Off Camera.